reading from Genesis 4, verses 10 to 26, which you can find in your bulletin or in your Bible or on your app. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall, taken, shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled into the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Methujael, and Methujael fathered Methushael, Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took, took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play with the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all, of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called him his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. leading in prayer for us this morning. Um, for those of you who are maybe visiting here this morning or new, haven't been around for a while, we're in a, we're in a bit of a unique series. Uh, we're looking at the earliest chapters of the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And maybe some people are thinking, what on earth would you be studying the book of Genesis now for? It's a whole bunch of old ancient myths. What do they have to do with uh, the modern world? Well, it's a little bit sparked by a, a, a pretty famous guy by the name of Jordan Peterson, who is a, uh, a kind of public thinker, public intellectual, who, who said this about the earliest stories in, Gen in Genesis. He said that they are investigations into the structure of being itself, and calls to action within that being. In other words, what Jordan Peterson was saying is, you want to know how to live in this world? You want to understand the nature of reality and how to live well in that reality? You should study these old stories at the beginning of the Bible. Pretty astounding, really, right? And so what, that's what we're doing. We have been making our way through these chapters so that we can learn how to live well as people on this earth and as followers of Jesus Christ in this world. That's what we've been, what we've been looking at. Last time we were in this series, uh, Mark uh, taught us about uh, the story of Cain and Abel and how in that story we discover something about the nature of sin. Sin is predatory, right? Sin has, has this 
this powerful desire to destroy us, not just corrupt us, but ultimately destroy us. And we saw that in the first half of Genesis chapter 4. And now we're continuing that story this morning, and we're discovering how this sin doesn't just seek to destroy individuals in their own hearts and lives, but how sin actually tries to make its way into the rest of humanity and spreads throughout it, almost like a genetic defect. And again, we want to live wisely in the world. We want to know how to Be smart about the way we live in this world. And so we're going to study this story of Cain's descendants, Lamech and all these other folks with these crazy names. Great job, by the way, Allie, coming, uh, you know, pronouncing all these names. Um, It's probably a bit intimidating for some people to have to to do that, but you did a great job. Uh, We're going to look at three things this morning. You can find them in the sermon outline on the back, and I'm sure you'll have questions, someone will have questions about this strange passage, so be ready to text me your questions or ask them at the end of the message this morning. The three things we're going to look at are how sin has affected everything, but it's complicated, how original sin, something called original sin, a biblical doctrine known as original sin is the reason for this problem, and how worship is actually the solution to this problem. Those are the three things we're going to try to figure out together this morning. First of all, as we read this story, we're taught by God that sin, this thing called sin, has infected absolutely everything, but the way it's done so is complicated. Let me explain. We read in verse 17 that Cain built a city. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, when you think city, you do not, you probably think of a place like Toronto, maybe Hamilton, you know, big, dense, lots of population. That's not what the Bible is talking about when the Bible says the word city. Basically, the Bible means by the term city a walled settlement. It's the idea of having settled down in some way. And so Cain building a city is significant because it is an act of defiance. Not that cities are bad, okay? Cities in the Bible are ambivalent. You have bad cities like Sodom, Gomorrah, these kinds of cities. Nineveh, which we studied earlier this year. But you also have good cities like Jerusalem, right? That's a good city. So the Bible itself is ambivalent about cities, and I I say that because I know that some of you people are country folk, and you think the city is bad, and you like living in the country, having some property, so you're away from neighbors and all the mess that comes with being close to other people, and you are not closer to God because you are in the country. I just want you to know that. You people who live in cities, like me, we kind of want to thumb our nose a little bit and look down at you country folk and say, well, you know, we're serious about God and we're serious about, about the mission because we live in the city. Well, this is, the reality is, is that city, country, nobody's better, nobody's worse, nobody's more missional or less missional, um, but you should all live in the city. Anyhow, uh, so here's the city. And Cain builds a city, which is, like I said, just a walled settlement, but that's an act of defiance for Cain, because up in verse 12 of our passage, it says this, 
You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. God had cursed Cain because of his murder of his brother and said that you are, you are sentenced to be a wanderer on the earth for the rest of your life. That was the curse. But God didn't just curse Cain. He also offered grace to Cain because in verse 15 it says that if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. And what that means is, is that Cain was supposed to depend on God's grace to protect him from the effects of the curse that had been laid down on him. But instead, Cain built a city. Cain built a city because he wanted to escape the effects of the curse that were laid down on him. He wanted to manage the curse on his own terms, not on God's terms. In modern language, we would say that Cain tried to save himself. What are the results of that? Well, it's complicated. It's complicated because in verses 20 through 22, we get this description of civilization actually developing. It says, Adabor Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we have the beginning of animal husbandry, we have the beginning of agriculture in the person of Jabal. And then we read that um, he was the, his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and harp, or par- not harp, pipe, the lyre and pipe, which, which is basically a description of the development of the arts. And so through Jubal and his descendants, we have the development of the arts. And then it also says that Tubal-Cain was a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. And so we have the development of technology and we have the development of tools. Even Lamech is part of this development because we have in verses 23 and 24, we have the first poetry recorded in the Bible and therefore in civilization. And so what we're seeing described here is the development of civilization, and it's actually not all bad. It's actually pretty good. Interestingly enough, the names of these folks, like Jabal Jabal and Jubal and Tubal-Cain, these are names that in the original are meant to evoke the idea of joy and the idea of happiness. It's a positive thing. These, in other words, the development of civilization is bringing about positive changes to the world. So development is good. Unfortunately, it's not all good. And that's the problem. That's why it's complicated. In verse 19, we get the first hint that development is not all good because it says, And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the other was of Zillah. The other one was Zillah. This is the first mention in the Bible of polygamy, right? Having more than one spouse. Now, people have often looked at the Bible and said, you know, the Bible actually promotes polygamy because you see it described in the Bible all over the place, like here and elsewhere. There's many people who had more than one wife, Abraham, Jacob, Solomon, David, right? These are all characters in the Bible who have had more than one wife. And so people have argued that because the Bible describes polygamy, it must therefore condone polygamy. Let me give you a very simple but extremely important principle of reading the Old Testament. Description is not necessarily prescription. 
Just because something is described in the Bible, even if it's described repeatedly, that doesn't mean that the Bible therefore condones it. The reason we know that the Bible never anywhere condones polygamy is because, first of all, this chapter, Genesis 4, comes pretty soon after Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, we learn that God created marriage as an institution, a divinely instituted relationship between one man and one woman. That's how God meant for things to be. And then when you read about polygamy in Genesis 4, or you read about it in the life of Abraham, or the life of Jacob, or the life of David, or the life of Solomon, everywhere you read about polygamy in the Bible, it always ends up a disaster. It's never for the good. Now, God uses it and turns things for good, as is his ability and power for his glory, but, but initially it is not a good thing. And so we have this hint that things are already going wrong because Lamech uh, takes two wives. Now, that's a hint. But God doesn't just leave us with a hint in Genesis 4. He actually makes it very, very clear for us that things are going in a very quick downward spiral in this poem that Lamech shares in verses 23 and 24. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Kevin's revenge... Kevin? <laughs> Sorry. If Kevin's revenge... If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, scholars have noted that this poem comes right after the description of Tubal-Cain making tools. And the implication is, is there that Tubal-Cain's ability to forge with, uh, out of tools out of bronze and iron actually led to the creation of weapons as well. But the point of the poem is to show how things are, even though they've been getting better, they're also getting worse. And one Old Testament scholar by the name of Derek Kidner says that this is the pattern of human history. The pattern of human history is that as civilization progresses, as we get more advanced, as we get better, evil progresses too. We become more debased. In other words, the way you could put it is, is, as you multiply people, you also multiply sin. You remember a couple weeks ago uh, in Mark's sermon, he mentioned uh, a guy by the name of Steven Pinker. He's a Harvard uh, scholar who wrote a book where he was trying to argue, I think it's called Enlightenment Now or something like that, and he, in that book he argues that, you know, we're always talking about the sky falling and the world's getting worse, etc. He looks at the hard data to demonstrate that actually the world is becoming a much better place. The world is becoming safer. The world is becoming richer. The world is having more human rights uh, protected around the world. There's lots of, we have a longer lifespan. There are less people living in poverty today. All these things are pointing to the world being a better place. And you know what? That's true. That's absolutely true. According to certain metrics, the world is getting better. It would be way better to live today than 120 years ago then probably 100 years ago, then 50 years ago. Things are getting better, but, 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 this is really important. It's not getting clear. We are not necessarily t advancing morally. 
You know, we, we write poetry and we start celebrating violence. We discover music and uh, we, we invent country music. <laughs> I was hoping somebody would chuckle at that. Look at, look at cell phones. How many of you, and I actually want you to raise your hand, how many of you have a cell phone? All right, put your hand down. How many of you consider your cell phone nearly an indispensable tool for your life? And how many of you hate that stupid thing too? You have a love-hate relationship with your cell phone because it's done great things for you, right? It's got you more connected, made you more productive. Uh, It's done all kinds of good things, but it's also done a lot of negative things in your life as well, hasn't it? It's caused you to be more distracted. It's caused you to waste time. It's contributed, we're told anyway, by a a lot of scientists and sociologists and and, and neuroplasticity experts that it's actually rewiring our brain in ways that makes us more antisocial, even though we're more connected, strangely enough. Here's the point. Our world... Our culture, including you and me, and when I say our world, our culture, I'm not saying all those bad people out there outside these walls, and we're the smart Christians who don't fall into this. When I say our world, I say, I mean our culture. This is us. Our problem is, is that we have put so much faith in technological advancements, in advancements as civilization to make us better people. Not just to make the world better, but we actually think that somehow it will make us better people. And that has been an absolutely foolish, foolish, foolish project. You know, I like quotes, so I put quotes on the front of the bulletin week in and week out. And sometimes I refer to them, sometimes I don't. We're going to refer to them uh, this morning. H.G. Wells, famous author from the turn of the 20th century. He was a secular humanist. He believed that Technology and, and human advancement uh, was the key to achieving a utopia, a perfect world one day. And he wrote in 1937, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know. Going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. What a celebration of humanity and our ability to progress through ingenuity. Now, that was in 1937. H.G. Wells lived through the Second World War. And he saw the atrocities of the Nazis, and he saw the atrocities of, of uh, Soviet Stalin, and he saw the atrocities of Japan, and it nearly destroyed him because he had put so much faith in the human ability to progress and overcome through technological advancement that it nearly killed him to see what he was seeing in the news reports coming out of Europe and the Pacific after World War II. He wrote a book um, called Man at the End of His Tether. What a powerful name. What a powerful title. And this is what he said. This is only nine years later. He wrote, The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. 
Homo sapiens, which, by the way, means the rational, the wise, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. It's a sad irony to reflect on the 20th century and realize that it is a century of more technological advancement than ever in the cumulative history of humankind. But it is also the century that has more bloodshed than the history of humankind put together. Something is wrong with us. Despite what Pinker says, Something is wrong with us. Look at this poem. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit. What Lamech does here is he actually celebrates, okay, killing a kid who scratched him or bruised him or maybe just looked at him funny. When it says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, that word strike is literally wound or scratch. Young man means possibly child. Most definitely it meant like someone 14 and younger. What he's doing is celebrating this idea that at the slightest provocation, he took this kid's head off. And, and the growth of evil is exponential because where it says that Cain's vengeance would be sevenfold, his vengeance, he says, is 77-fold. What's that all about? If you look up in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. This is what God promised Cain. And what God promised meant when he made, or what God meant when he made this promise was he was going to execute justice for any evil that was done against Cain. That number seven is the number in the Bible. It, it, it symbolizes perfection. It symbolizes completion. And so God is saying that if someone attacks Cain, I will execute justice. I will do, I will do right in this situation. But here, Lamech is saying, I'll go beyond God. I am more fearsome than God himself. Justice isn't what matters here. Vengeance is what matters here. Forget the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle. I'll take the whole head for an eye. I never let things go. I will never give up on my revenge. Now I would really like to just drill down on this a little bit for our modern context, but We've got to move on to the second point or we'll never end. Why does this happen? Why is this happening? Why is this, this sin sort of spreading through the whole world? Well, the Bible's answer is a doctrine called original sin. This story, in fact, all of chapter 4, answers an existential question. Here's the question. How are human beings born? You're like, well, duh, take a biology class, buddy. That's not my point. Are we born good? Is that how we're born? Are we born bad? Or are we born neutral? It's an important question. It's an important question because the way you answer that question will dictate what you think the solution to the world's problems actually is. So in our modern Western culture today, people would say that, 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 
that people are born either good or, at worst, neutral. There was a philosopher in the 1600s by the name of John Locke. He said that human beings were born tabula rasa, meaning they were born as a blank slate, morally, intellectually. They were, there was nothing there. They didn't lean one way or the other. Most people would say we're either that or we're born good, and people become bad because of the bad choices that they make. In other words, you start out good or you start out neutral, you make bad choices, and therefore you turn into a bad person. Now, if that's the case, then what's the way we solve that problem? We teach people to make better choices. So we improve education. We help people learn how to parent better. We have better schools. We provide better opportunities for disadvantaged people. We make sure that there's an equal opportunity to get out of things like poverty or, or uh, uh, difficult social circumstances or economic, economic circumstances. And yet, interestingly enough, even though that project has been going on for 40 some odd years, 50 some odd years, maybe even more, Scholars, political thinkers, people who write opinion papers in newspaper, right? Or opinion pieces in newspapers. They agree that we are a bit of a, in a crisis in our culture around moral development. Even though we've made lots of smart people who know how to do things, we haven't been able to figure out how to make people more moral. And just one example of that is a recent book by the guy David Brooks. I've mentioned him before, one of my living heroes. Just recently wrote, wrote a book called um, The Road to Character. And in that book, he argues that we're learning to make people smarter and smarter and smarter, but we're not figuring out how to make people better and better and better. Scripture's answer to this question, are we born good or are we born bad, is very, very different from the, the cultures. Scripture says that we are most certainly born bad. We're born bad. And because we're born bad, because we're born with original sin, we do bad. Our nature is inclined toward evil right from birth. And I'm listening, I'm watching Shannon bounce her little sweetie pie over there in the back. And I hear Zola or somebody singing over there. And you guys look in the faces of these beautiful newborn babies like I do and you think... They're bad. Really? They're inclined toward evil? Now, I think actually in a couple of seconds, I could, I could prove to you that yes, they are inclined toward evil and they are born bad, but your natural tendency is to recoil against that and think, how is that possible? And yet, that's Scripture's testimony. We use Psalm chapter 50, or Psalm, Psalm chapter, we use Psalm 51 in our time of confession. What does David say? King David, who is a man after God's own heart, what did he say in Psalm 51? He said, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. A couple weeks ago, Cain murdered, not because somebody taught him how to murder, not because somebody showed him the way to get it done, Cain murdered because murder was in his heart. And what we see in our passage is that his great, great, great grandson, Lamech, is doing the same thing, but he's, he's doing it even worse. Because the problem, you see, is not out there. 
ultimately. The problem ultimately is in here, and therefore the solution is not moral improvement. It's not better education. It's not better opportunities. Of course we should be concerned about providing better education for, for people and better opportunities for children. And, and, and this church provides as many opportunities as we can for those who need, uh, who need a, a hand up, so to speak. And learning how to make better choices is, of course, an important way to, su- to succeed. And we should be working toward that. But the ultimate solution to the human problem is more radical than that because the, the ultimate problem that human beings live with is more radical than that. We're born sinners. So what's the solution? Well, in verse 16... It says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod. That's a summary of what's gone wrong, okay? He did it metaphorically when he killed his brother Abel, and he did it literally here in verse 16. He went away from the the presence of the Lord. That's the problem, and it's an ominous statement that the further we go from the presence of the Lord, the more debased, the more wicked, the more self-centered we become. But at the very end of this passage, very interestingly, it says this. This is the last point, by the way. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, there's a whole bunch of things going on here in two short verses. Let me try to make sense of it for you very quickly. First of all, it says that God gave Eve another son. It's interesting, if you go back to the story where Cain was born, right at the beginning of of chapter 4, it says, I have gotten a man. Other translations say, I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. So Eve puts herself first and puts God second. I have brought forth or I have gotten a man. But here it says, she says, I should say, that God has appointed for me another offspring. Now if you, uh, I guess you guys don't have this, but, but the Hebrew word there is the word for appointed, or it means something like appointed. And when it says that she, he has appointed for me another offspring, the word she literally uses is the word seed. What Eve is saying is, is that there's another line What Genesis is telling us is that God is providing another line. There was the seed of the serpent that that was coming through the the life and descendants of Cain, but he was now providing another line through Seth. Interestingly, Seth doesn't just necessarily mean appointed. It can also mean new beginning or foundation. God is starting over with another line through which he is going to crush the serpent and his line. And what's the characteristic difference between this line and the line of Cain? They call on the name of the Lord. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's language for worship. What does it mean to worship God, call on the name of the Lord? 
Well, you get another hint. It really helps to know what these names mean. Sorry, guys, but <laughs> it really helps to know what these name, name, names mean. The name Enosh means weak and frail. So here's Seth, born to this new line. He has a child, and he names this child weak, frail. And then it says, people began to call on the name of the Lord. See, to, to worship God, to call on the name of the Lord, is to admit your weakness. It's to admit that you cannot manage the curse yourself. That's what Cain was trying to do when he was building the city. And now here we see this other line admitting their weakness, calling on the name of the Lord, saying, I can't rely on myself. I'm not hoping in myself. I can't do it. I can't change myself. I can't obey myself. I need you, oh God, to change me. I need you. I need your grace. And centuries and centuries and centuries later, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, who was writing to believers in a place that you're familiar with, the city of Rome. He's writing about Jesus Christ, and listen to what he says. This is Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, and now here, listen carefully. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul's talking about Adam and Jesus. And he's saying that in Adam, all of us are constituted sinners because of his act of disobedience. But then in the next breath, Paul says that in the one act, in the life of Jesus Christ, who obeyed God perfectly in his obedience, in his gospel, that he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died, through Christ, you and I are not just, we don't just have our sins forgiven, but we're made righteous before God. In other words, that's not you anymore. Yes, sin is still there in your life, but through Jesus Christ, the power of sin can be broken in your life because as Paul says in another place, in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, in 2 Corinthians, he says, in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This is not moral improvement. This is not better education. This is not a better choice. It is a new birth. And if you are sitting here saying, well, that all sounds good, but I don't know, is it really necessary? I want to remind you of the man that we prayed for this morning. A man who has lived his entire life, much of his, his, of his adult life, in the grip of the bondage to addiction. And he has tried on his own over and over and over again to overcome, to keep it at bay, to keep the dragon in the cave, to white-knuckle it through and to say, I can handle it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And every now and then, the, the dragon comes forth from the cave in all of its venom and it attacks him so that he is powerless powerless against it. Are you going to just tell this guy, 
You can do it. Suck it up one more time. Let's go to detox. Let's get clean. And then you just got to, you got to want it, you know? You just got to want it. Obviously, you're not wanting it enough. Are you going to look him in the eye and say that? A guy who is in the, such in the grip of despair, and he's saying, I want it, I want it, I want it, but I just don't have power. Because we don't have power to change ourselves. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of the gospel. None of us has power to change ourselves. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation because God has power to change us as we worship him, as we admit our weakness, as we fall down before him and say, I am powerless over my addiction and I need an outside power to change me. Who's the outside power? It's Jesus. It's new birth. Now, what do we do with this? Like, so what? What's the so what here? Well, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on, but I'm going to try to go quickly and and short. (laughs) Ask yourself this question. What have you always thought you most need? Or when you're dealing with parents, if you're dealing with your kids and you're wondering about their circumstances and the stuff that, you know, that they do and they're struggling and they're not behaving well or they're not obeying well or they're rebellious or they're making bad choices and, be, and becoming friends with people you definitely would prefer that they didn't become friends with and you fret over it. I mean, listen to me babble on and on and on. Obviously, I fret over it. What do your kids most need? Ask yourself that question. What does this town that we find ourselves in most need? There's needs. What does our country most need? What does the world most need? Does it need better education? Better protection under the law? Property rights? Safety? Water, it needs those things, but what does it most need? All of us, what we most need is Jesus, is transformation. And so that's what we, as the church, need to be most about. We do stuff in the community, we do stuff in our neighborhoods, but what we need to be about most of all is not necessarily serving people all the time, but, but, but serving them with Jesus, proclaiming forgiveness through him. And second of all, what about those of us who have been trying and failing, trying to be good, but mucking it up over and over and over and over and over again? And who are thinking, man, maybe I just got to, Maybe I don't want it bad enough. Maybe I just got to try harder. Maybe, and you're thinking, I just got to white knuckle my way through. And then you fail again, and you are, covered, you are just weighed down with terrible guilt, terrible shame. What do you need? Same thing. You need forgiveness. You need to let go of trying to do it yourself. You need to trust him for what he's done for you. 
trust the Spirit to empower you to a new way of living. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a reason it's called the new birth. Babies aren't born with the ability to walk or change their own diapers, unfortunately. And neither are you or I. When we come to Jesus, we're not born with all these abilities. But we are born with a power. The power of Christ in us. Pray with me. Father, I don't even know what to pray, Lord. I pray for myself and for everybody here that we would not be fooled into thinking that we can just improve ourselves through better education or harder work or increased opportunities. We need real hope, the hope that comes from a changed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, give us a sense of that hope and a confidence in that hope and a desire to share that hope with those around us. In Jesus we pray, amen.